1901, Edinburgh, great American psychologist William James, brother of Henry James, founder of American psychology and American philosophy, gives the first in a series of talks on the psychological nature of mystical experiences, mystical spiritual experiences, ecstatic experiences. And William James, given his open-minded quality, uh, is probably the very first psychologist who is interested in mystical experiences for the one, the, the psychology of them, what is the underlying mechanism that's going on, but two, he doesn't look at them from the point of view of pathology. In other words, uh, the idea that mystical experiences are delusional by nature because they activate a different level of consciousness or quality of perception than one is normally in in one day-to-day -day life. Even though the consciousness of mystical, ecstatic, spiritual experience is hardly the one that you would want to be in while you're engaging in a conference call, because um, that would be stupid, but it has its own value. And William James proposes that, in fact, spiritual experiences have great beneficial value and are uh, many ways contributory to our well-being. So he's not on the one hand simply saying that all of them are good, but he's not coming from the point of view that spiritual experiences, as many psychologists of this time had, had approached them, just viewed them as a form of delusion that had to be cured or were in some way lesser than what he, James, calls normal waking rational consciousness. I'm going to read you a little bit of some of the things he says so you get a feeling of uh, what he proposed. And again, this was 1901, so the language is a little bit uh, dated, but I think the ideas are pretty discernible. So he writes, Normal waking rational consciousness is but one special type of consciousness. About it, parted from waking consciousness by the flimsiest of screens, there are entirely different forms of consciousness. And with the right stimulus, they arise in all their completeness. And then of these ecstatic experiences, he says, a feeling of being in a wider life outside of this world's selfish little interests, a willingness to consider, to surrender egoic control to an immense elation and freedom. The confining selfish mind breaks down. A shifting of one's emotional center towards the loving and harmonious yes and away from the egoic no. Your whole subconscious life, impulses, needs, prepares you for this consciousness, this moment. And something in you absolutely knows that it is truer than any logic rationalistic talk, no matter how clever that might contradict it. So if you're saying that spiritual experiences, though they're not as <coughs> rational to our waking consciousness, um, because much of them is 
comprised of uh, less verbal states, states that are greater in awe than they are in chattiness. They are valid, and in fact, they have a very important role to play in our um, lasting emotional balance. Now, this writing all wound up in his book, The Varieties of Religious and Mystical Experience, and it was because of William James writing this that uh, William, that um, Bill Wilson, the founder of AA, wrote all of the AA literature that he's responsible for and came up with the idea that the way to address alcoholism and addiction was by having some form of spiritual experience. And whether or not you uh, buy into that, it's really, I think, important to be uh, interested in the idea that there's not just one valid form of consciousness. And I think William James's idea that the other kinds of consciousness that we might call mystical are there all the time. They're not something that we're just keeping out, like there's a door locked between our rational mind and outside of this door of repression, there's this mystical mind that's waiting to come in. Rather, it's much more James and even Freud later on in Moses and Monotheism is claiming that there's the rational egoic mind, which is like the tip of an iceberg, which is what we're aware of, but right beneath our conscious awareness all the time is another form of consciousness that's just as valid and just as important. And I will refer to these two by a couple of different names. The rational, verbal, dominant waking consciousness, I will refer to as the representational mind, the mind that turns all of experience into words and ideas, that pulls us away from the world around us and gets us lost in thought or thinking about our experience and turning it into stories that we can then repeat to other people. Um, there's always an element of representation in waking consciousness or the dominant consciousness. And of course, can, uh, modern neuroscience, especially uh, in the work of Alan Shore, Ian McGilchrist, Gazaniga, and so forth, um, they all point to the idea that in right-handed people, the uh, dominant hemisphere is the left, and if you are left-handed, your dominant hemisphere is probably your right. That's not true all the time with left-handed. Sometimes they have the dominant hemisphere in the same low, but it's probably the right. And so it's flipped. If you're dominant, if you're right-handed, your dominant language, the part of the brain that holds Broca and Wernicke's region, which is language-based, is probably your left hemisphere. And so, and if you're left-handed, it's probably in the right. I, I don't think that's overly complex, but I just want to make that clear. So, the consciousness that we're most aware of, the dominant interpretive representational one, is narrowly focused. It doesn't take in the whole world around us. It focuses on specific objects 
and it tries to reach out and grab those objects and manipulate the world around us. It is abstract. It is, uh, tends to break complex events down into very simple stories. It, when we go through a very painful event in life, we believe that we process it by turning it into a story and a little narrative. And we use our representational thoughts as a way to repress our emotions and the felt body. So we're very often, when we see somebody who's grieving, we'll try to say something to pick them up, to lift them up, so that they won't feel so sad. Uh, the nature of the left hemisphere of your right hand, the dominant hemisphere, as I'll call it, the representational mind, is that it has very few uh, neural connections to the body. It doesn't like to feel. And it doesn't like to take in all the world around us and its complexity and its novelty. The job of the dominant hemisphere is to take experience and constantly transform it into categories like good, bad, useful, useless, worthy, unworthy, day, night. So it breaks down experience that's very real, very present, very novel. Each moment of our life is different, and it turns it into, oh, how was your day? Just another day at the office. It turns it into a kind of story so that you see a tree, for example, and instead of taking in the tree, you go, oh, look at that tree. You take maybe a selfie of yourself with the tree, and then you're done. That's your dominant hemisphere. It doesn't want to have the fullness of a unique experience. It wants to turn everything into a representation and an icon that you can express to other people. So your self-conscious, to the degree it's based on a story rather than embodied feelings, is uh, left hemispheric or dominant. The idea that time can be broken down into digital chunks of days hours, minutes, and seconds, when of course those things do not exist in nature. Those are arbitrary. We, we literally, on one level we know this, but on another level we so live our lives in the idea of, oh, it's Tuesday, seven o'clock, I wanna go hear that weird tattooed Buddhist guy speak, so I have to be somewhere at seven. That. We so live our lives within these chunks, we forget that they absolutely do not exist. Your experience when you first go into any new vista, any new situation, there's no, there's no postal districts, there's no country lines to it, there's no days and hours. All of that are man-made, dominant hemispheric concepts. Now this ability to turn, to turn the world into words and hours and symbols, to represent life so that we can organize each other, and I can say to you, hey, what are you up for tomorrow at one? Wanna have a quick bite? And you know what that means, and you can decide, and then we can actually meet at the same location because we've broken down the, the world into specific streets with addresses. All of that is incredibly powerful. It is, in fact, the reason why we are the dominant, the dominant species on the planet, because we can organize each other and in movements and behaviors. We can, we can break down actions. We can essentially put ourselves into specialized uh, careers. 
with specific skills, we can communicate expectations. All of that is an incredibly powerful tool. And so it's very easy because it's so deeply wrapped up in our survival and what makes us uh, human that we tend to think it's the only kind of consciousness that exists. And that any other kind of consciousness, when it's there, is kind of weird. But actually going on beneath this largely verbal representational story of our lives, of who we are, our identity, our beliefs, what the Buddha called Ditti is an entirely second form of consciousness contributed by your right hand, your right hemisphere if you're right-handed, or your left hemisphere if you're left-handed. It's the non-dominant consciousness. And this has a very, very different quality to it. And interestingly enough, the thin thread that connects the two normally in most people is very, very inactive. So these two forms of consciousness are often working very much on their own without, you know, they sometimes work together when we understand humor, when we're being creative, when we're writing in a journal, they're working together. But very often when we're caught up in stories about the world, while on the other hand, we're unconsciously monitoring situations for how safe we are, we are working with two hemispheres that are largely independent of each other. So the non-dominant is uh, vigilant background peripheral awareness, whereas the dominant awareness focuses on objects and, and isolates them from the world and develops words for each object and decide some objects are important to get for us to be happy and thinks in terms of right now and the future. The non-dominant hemisphere has no conception of the future. It doesn't think in terms of objects. It thinks in terms of holes. <coughs> you ever heard the word holistic? That is almost entirely descriptive of the non-dominant hemisphere. It believes that we are connected inextricably with the world around us and with other people. It doesn't view us as isolated or separate or cut off. It is interested in the betweenness, not objects in and of themselves. So when you do music, when you listen to music, you are always using that second form of consciousness. You, if you're asked to explain why you like a piece of music, you probably will not be able to do it unless you're talking about the words, the lyrics. But if you're asked about the melody, it will be very difficult for you because the thing that allows you to appreciate melodies is your non-dominant hemisphere. It's dreamlike. It doesn't have a time stamp on it. So events that happen in the distant past can feel and be experienced just as much in the present as events that are happening right now. And guess what? When you're dreaming, your waking consciousness, your left hemisphere is completely switched off, but you're right, your subdominant is working. And that's why your dreams have this quality where you can see people from the distant past who are long dead mingling with people from your present life. Because your hippocampus, your daily recorder, is running all this experience by the emotional mind. And that's probably the most important facet of the non-dominant hemisphere is that it's emotions that it speaks to us through. While your dominant mind uses words and language and ideas, and you know what's on its mind because it's telling you, 
in words, you only are aware of the needs of your non-dominant secondary consciousness by when moods, anxieties, worries, fears, strong emotions arise. That's how your right hemisphere, if you're right-handed, speaks to you. The sense of self that it contributes has no story about who we are based on attributes or skills or I'm a neurotic Buddhist, whatever story I might carry around myself. It's based on the way my body feels to me. It has no, when it uses language, which is very limited, its language is very metaphoric. It, the left hemisphere is very concise, specific. If I say, pass the spoon, I'm using my left hemisphere, my dominant one. If I say, clouds, green wheelbarrow, potato, I don't know. I'm bad, I'm bad attempt at being metaphoric, but I'm using my right. So the right hemisphere time or the non-dominant time is not linear, not broken into chunks of hours and minutes and seconds. It's felt in moods and flavors and moments can feel, some moments can feel like they last for long periods of time. Other moments can feel very, very brief. So the Buddha talked about these two different forms of perception or consciousness. One he called lokiya, which is the mundane, verbal, day-to-day, -day, conceptual, representational, the way we communicate. And he said it's filled with things called ditti, which are labels and ideas. And he says that when the shit hits the fan in life, guess what? All of that lokiya stuff that we've been worrying about, that we've been organizing our, our lives around to collect, begins to fall to pieces. That when we really face the existential crises of life, like loss and old age and sickness and death and separation, then suddenly all of the ideas and what they've been pushing us to accomplish very often begin to feel wanting. In the Rathapala Sutta, he, this, the Dharma is represented as, you know, we spend a lot of time chasing financial security to make us feel secure. But when we face any existential crisis in our life, guess what? All of the money that we've been chasing, the financial security, doesn't really contribute often very much. Or we worry about reputation, what other people think about us. But when people are on their deathbeds or very, very ill, they rarely talk about, oh, I wish I had spent more time worrying what people thought about me. It's rarely what we hear. Ownership. Nobody owns a damn thing, really. We're borrowing everything that we own to the extent that it... Um, has any durability in most products don't but so all these things that the left hemisphere which is about the left hemisphere the representational mind the mind that is based on ideas and concepts because it's all about separating the world into objects it tends to believe that everything can be solved if we simply accumulate or achieve or acquire something and it constantly puts happiness into the future. It doesn't believe that right here and right now are all the tools that we really need. It doesn't view each moment as being whole and complete. It's constantly trying to get something 
because it's it lives in a narrative it lives in a sequential story there's something in the future I need to get before I deserve to be happy your right hemisphere or the non-dominant the that mind is um, completely has no concept of the future it believes that we are deeply connected to the world and it doesn't ever view ourselves in terms of needing to get anything man-made. The only thing it's concerned with is getting safely secured to other human beings. That's the only thing it cares about is connection, attachment. It's constantly in the background get pre pre presenting emotions that are activated by how connected we are to other people. If we're poorly connected, we feel sad, disappointed. If someone does something that is aggressive towards us, we feel angry. If we feel uh, disconnected, we might feel lonely. And if we feel well-connected, we might feel joy. And so our emotions are litmus tests on how well-connected we are in the present moment. Buddha, of course, uh, says that this is the dominant kind of consciousness towards contributing the what he calls the locatura is the consciousness that contributes lasting peace of mind. If you haven't gotten it already, what I'm overtly suggesting is that the spiritual mind is what happens when we bring this second kind of consciousness up into our awareness and make it of equal value. When we no longer push down, repress our needs for secure connection, a feeling of each moment being lasting, an appreciation of the beauty of each present experience. I'm not suggesting that one form of consciousness is better than the other. In fact, if you have a stroke in one, you won't be able to talk or communicate in that very well, and that would be, although you'll still be able to live your life uh, in terms of most of your decisions, that your subdominant consciousness makes are pretty smart. On the other hand, if you have a subdominant stroke and you are retain all of your ability to have language and conceptual ideas, virtually every decision you make will be stupid and you'll wind up being hospitalized. And so either way, you're kind of screwed. You want to have both. You want to be able to understand your emotional needs, get them met, and you also want to be able to communicate those experiences to other people if you want to have a well-balanced mind. So there are people out there called psychonauts. I love this. Psychonauts take LSD, magic mushroom, ayahuasca, mescaline, MDMA, all of the drugs I took en masse. It's just I never called myself a psychonaut. I just called myself a young drug addict from the Lower East Side. But, uh, and they report very similar things to what William James claimed as the point of mystical experience. They say when it all works out well, they experience a unity or connection with all things, a transcendence of their little self-ego that's separate from everything around us. And when we live in that little ego that's based on our story, based on our thoughts, based on our ideas, we tend to feel very vulnerable and small and stuck inside a very small compartment. We don't feel connected to the world around us. Um, 
It has a very, uh, we have an expansive sense of time. Moments can last for hours. And uh, when, they, when taking hallucinogens, we have insights into the true nature of reality and states have a dreamlike awe. In other words, we've simply, when we take hallucinogens, the serotonin of hallucinogens, which bombard what's known as the 2A receptors, they supercharge the right hemisphere of the brain and essentially all of the right hemispheric experience floods up to awareness and meanwhile a lot of the verbal components of the ventral medial get switched off. So we're largely in a very different state of consciousness. Now, while this can feel very pleasant, there's some, let's say there's some drawbacks for taking hallucinogens over and over and over again. Believe me. <laughs> so the negatives, just in case you, you think any of this is making you feel attracted to the idea of going to a shaman and taking the ayahuasca rituals that happen all over Brooklyn, uh, a couple of things. One, uh, serotonin steeply reduces your brain supply. So in the aftermath, you will very likely feel depressed. Two, it can trigger paranoia. Three, this strong erosion of the egoic self doesn't always feel pleasant to everyone. The idea of, holy shit, I don't know who I am anymore. I don't know, I feel suddenly like I'm outside of my body is not always a pleasant experience. The decompensation of dismantling neural networks, which is what flooding serotonin can do and cause synesthesia, can result in lasting hospitalizations. So the idea that enlightenment is something that a drug can give you is a dicey idea at best. For one-off experiences with people who know what they're doing in safe hands, you take your own risks. I won't say anything bad about it, but in terms of looking for lasting uh, mystical experiences that are safe, I don't personally recommend it. But it turns out that according to the Imperial College of London, the University of Zurich and um, Harvard, they have found that um, meditation can actually induce safely very similar mystical states. It does it in different ways. It doesn't flood your brain with serotonin, which essentially uh, interrupts neural networks. What it does is when you meditate, you actually over time switch off the parietal lobe, which is what locates you in a small little body that, and makes you feel very separate from the world around you. When you're out in the world, you know, where you could get injured, it's probably a good idea to have your parietal hyperactivated when you're walking around traffic. But when you're here in Dharma bunks, you can switch that old parietal lobe off. That's what happens when you uh, close your eyes, bring your awareness into the body, you stop worrying about the world around you, you start to switch it off. But even more important, over time in meditation, the corpus callosum, which integrates your right hemisphere, the subdominant into the dominant, becomes much, much more active, and over time, much thicker. So you will have far better integration of your emotional needs into your conscious, rational thought. 
This is especially good news to us men because we have very poor emotion integration. In fact, um, studies of brains by gender show that men have piss poor corpus callosum. <laughs> Almost all of our connections are going front to back, but we have very, very poor uh, emotion integration. Probably most women here are aware of that by now. <laughs> this is not news that we don't know how to understand our own emotions or don't feel comfortable with other people's emotions, which took me only 20 years of therapy to uh, Buddhist therapy to uh, address. So tonight's meditation is a special one. It's created by Fra Sudhidhamma Ransi, and it's in his book, Keeping the Breath in Mind. It's known as Method One. In the Dharma, the kind of meditation that's most associated with mystical states is concentration. So this will be a concentration meditation. In the Dharma, there's lots of different words for mystical states. The two most common are the jhanas and abhina. Abhina is the mystical powers that arise in meditation such as dibisota, the ability to hear sounds that are very distant, ceto pariya nana, the ability to comprehend entirely different parts of your mind and if you want other other people's minds it said, pubimiva sansati, the ability to suddenly remember events and experiences from your distant past. Now, I have to, of course, say that it's very unlikely that on your first go <laughs> that you'll have a profound mystical experience. They do arise on retreats where people do concentration retreats, but doing it here in this room is kind of, it's a big ask, but hell, I'll lead you through it. <laughs> And it will be on the internet, and it's also available to you all in the book Keeping the Breath in Mind uh, by Ajahn Lee. That's his shorter name. Meditation geared towards giving you the mystical experience. So by the end of it, you'll all have floated out of the room. So let's close our eyes. And uh, what we're going to do is uh, have three breaths at the beginning just to start this meditation in unison. So, breathing in, and I should say, if you're right-handed, breathe in through the left. They, it's interesting, there's actually science that shows that depending upon the tasks we do, we breathe in through different nostrils, if you can believe that. So um, to do this practice, if you're right-handed, use the left nostril, and if you're left-handed, use your right. So breathe in through whichever nostril you're using and lift up your shoulders like you're trying to touch your ears and hold them up there and then breathe out really slowly through the mouth and drop your shoulders and pull them back into whatever position feels really comfortable for you and then the second 
full in-breath through whichever nostril you're using, pull in the belly, hold it really, really taut, and then whenever you're ready, breathe out through the mouth and soften your belly. And then for the third in-breath, tighten the toes, the buttocks, the fists, and the muscles of the face. Clench the jaw, squeeze around the nose, the eyes, everything taut, and then breathe out and relax. So take a survey of your body and see if there's anything you can relax right now. So what you want to do throughout this meditation is prioritize your comfort. Set an intention to put aside any tendency to judge or criticize or evaluate yourself. That will play absolutely no role. In fact, if you do that, you'll simply be switching back on the dominant representational conceptual mind, and we want to switch that off. We want to stop narrating our experience, turning it into ideas and concepts. So what you want to do is just tell that part of the mind that it'll be welcome and listen to in a half an hour from now but from right now on you're not capable of doing anything wrong so we're going to start out with a series of breath counting exercises and lee in his methodology uh, is very specific so i'm just going to repeat it because uh, just want to introduce you to this practice in the purest form. So what we'll be doing is counting breaths, one on the in, two on the out, three on the in, four on the out. You count it in your mind and just, so as you're breathing in, think one, and as you're breathing out, think two. So the first round will count up to 10. 10 will be on an out breath, and then you start the next breath in will be nine, you're counting back down. So you're counting from one to 10 and back down. The odd numbers are always on the in breath and the even numbers are always on the out. And then we're gonna to count to seven and back down, then to five and back down, and then to three and back down. So we're counting to 10, then seven, then five, and three. And if you lose track, no worries. Just start wherever you think you were, no judgment. And we'll just start now.
So whenever you finish the counting series or want, you can simply let go of counting and just keep the breath in the foreground of the mind. But at this point you can allow the background awareness of any sounds or body sensations to be there, but try not to place the sounds outside of your body. Just hear them in consciousness. Don't name them. Just be open to whatever is occurring. And in the foreground of awareness is the breathing still, the sense of air at the tip of the nose, or if you prefer to breathe in through your mouth there. So for the next stage of this meditation, you can either bring your awareness to the very tip of the nose, 
and on the in-breath, glide at the front of your face, reaching the middle of the forehead as you complete the in-breath, and then as you breathe out, gliding back down the front of the face. Sometimes I actually do a different practice where I'll breathe in, feeling the belly, and then as I breathe in, I follow the energy moving up from the belly to the middle of the forehead, and then breathing out, feeling the release of the out-breath as an energy flowing from the head down into the body, softening, relaxing all the way down to the belly. So whichever one you prefer, I find it would be just as valuable. So moving up either from the tip of the nose or the belly on the in-breath up to the middle of the forehead and then when you reach there on the completion of the in-breath, feeling the release and moving back down the body. At this point, as you continue breathing, visualize in the middle of the forehead, 
where you often see memories or visualize ideas. If you tend to visualize things lower behind the eyes, that's fine as well. Wherever you visualize or see memories in your mind, see if you can visualize a white, bright circle or square, what the Buddha called a nimitta. And in Lee's instructions, he asks us to very slowly make this bright white shape, whichever it is, to grow larger and larger and larger as we breathe until first it fills up the entire head with a feeling of light, luminosity, brightness. So don't worry about being too exact. Just see if you can create an image that's very bright and see if you can spread it until it feels like every sensation that you associate with being in the head is bright, light, luminous. And then continue to spread this luminosity, this brightness into the body. So it no longer is experienced as something shadowy beneath you. But flow with this brightness down the head, especially with the out-breaths flowing down into the body. So the body and mind the head and body feel lit from within. Suddenly everything that is inside now feels luminous.
most important moment of the practice, see if you can spread any sense of lightness within, in all directions, down from your seat through the cushion, down into the earth, out through the eyes, forward, out through the ears and side of the head, up through the top of the head, the back of the head, light, moving out from the body in all directions till there is no sense of inside or outside, no sense of the outside or inside, no outline of the body any longer. Let that be in your mind's eye erased. And this lightness, this luminosity becomes completely one with consciousness itself. So it's flowing in all directions and everything you're aware of is subsumed by this luminosity. Obviously this takes a lot of practice and creative quality. Just let go and see whatever you experience when you hear these instructions. Don't try to be right, just see what happens. Everything is luminous, everything is in consciousness. There is no longer a body that creates inside and outside. There is just continuous experience. And within that lightness, allow anything to appear. No longer editing judging, criticizing, holding back, whatever images want to appear in this bright, luminous experience, just let. If images arise and pass, that's all fine. In this awareness, there is no longer a me and a not me, an inside or outside, just a feeling of everything occurring in the mind, in consciousness, held by this luminous awareness.
So as we reach the final part, the ending, in this white, bright, light space, if you can visualize right before you an image of yourself, any age you choose, just holding your image there. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. May I be free of stress and suffering. Letting your image fade and bring into this luminous space an image of someone, a being that you care about, any being animal, human, <clears throat> holding that being in your mind's eye, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, may you be free of stress and suffering. And then as the being begins to fade, also allow the lightness and the luminosity to fade. Whenever you're ready, slowly open your eyes and look at the ground in front of you. Letting the light of the outside world enter the mind, but seeing if you can still maintain some awareness of the body.